She's not tanning, look at us go Watching pitch perfect, twilight is torn, man Weekend is gone, watching her love Rose that went by that you don't know And I can't drink her, this is her time Away we go, mm -hmm. away we go Away we go, mm -hmm. the Annie Kendrick show Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Kicking It with Kendrick. I am one of your hosts, Pierre, and I am joined, as always, by Mr. Jeff. Jeff, how's it going? It's going pretty good. And we are back with a guest this episode. He is the host of the Box Office Watch podcast, where you keep watch on how much money movies make and why, and also the Oscars Death Race podcast, the podcast where they try to watch all the Oscars nominees or die trying. Yeah, hi, it's Paulo. <laughs> hi, Paulo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get not to be here, guys. Glad to finally make it on the Kendrick. Are, are are you a big Kendrick fan? Anna Kendrick fan? Is this like something uh, you're looking forward to? I mean, admittedly, I don't think I've watched a lot of her movies, um, or or have particularly paid attention to Anna Kendrick in movies before. Which you know, looking at her stuff here, uh, definitely, I feel like I should. I, I I mean, I definitely have seen. Pitch Perfect and definitely Paranorman as well come to mind as, as some of the standout ones. But in, in general, I think there's definitely some stuff that, you know, see movies she's been in have definitely been super relevant, I think, to just the way box office uh, has done, which, you know, has me excited. Super relevant to the box office. N now I'm curious because I can imagine what that might mean, but how so? Yeah, so I mean, you you guys talked about uh, Trolls World Tour a couple of weeks back, right? Or a couple episodes back, right? So yes. it's, it's that one specifically. Um, it definitely, I think, was one of the major paradigm shifts to just how box office would perform post, post-pandemic. I mean, I never would have expected in 2018 that the sequel to the Trolls movie would end up being as influential in the ways that it was. It, it felt like such a such a bizarre movie to make a difference and yet somehow every time we've talked about trolls world tour and we've done it twice now on our podcasts there's always a big caveat of so we need to talk about how the box office is doing yeah for sure for sure it, it's funny thing right so i actually started the box office watch podcast it's like one, well, one of my first podcasts was the Oscars Death Race podcast, right? Which is, is I think, how, I, how I, I found you guys online in the little community. But then, you know, I, I liked doing the podcast enough that, like, okay, when the Oscar season was done, I was like, okay, let me go ahead and do this other podcast. I just like looking at box office numbers in general. So I'm going to mm -hmm. go ahead and make a box office podcast. Cue four weeks into my podcast and movies either shut down for, like, nine months, basically, because of the pandemic. Right. So that was really interesting just – that was an interesting time to have a box office podcast to just kind of cover how the industry was changing in general. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like goes back to like why I do the box office podcast is that, you know, obviously we love movies. We love looking at movies and the stories they tell. But for me, I'm also a business major in college and kind of understanding that, hey, 
there's like another story behind the story, right? Like the story of all the money moving through the system. And, you know, it, it tells a lot about like, hey, what are the movies that people are receptive to? Which are the ones that they're not? And then Hollywood being Hollywood and, and being a business, you know, as much as it is an art form, you know, responding to that and, you know, stuff like, you know, Shang-Chi, you know, this past year having an amazing box office run means a lot for like Asian American performance, which you can trace back to Crazy Rich Asians. When Crazy Rich Asians mm-hmm. had an amazing box office run, you know, that opened a lot of the doors for Asian American representation on the big screen, right? That that wouldn't have happened unless, you know, Crazy Rich Asians had, you know, kind of opened those doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, also, I guess in in general, like, what would you say is uh, like some box office performances that like really, I mean, I guess were like really vital this year, if that makes sense, for pushing like yeah. movies forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think this might be a good place to actually kind of take a step back and, and to understand. I, I initially started the podcast with the idea of doing kind of like, hey, let's do a box office 101, right? Let, let's explain mm-hmm. these very basic concepts of how, you know, this, this online community of people who follow the box office and how they you know, how we look at numbers and how we analyze numbers. I mean, in my day job, I'm also like a data analyst. So, you know, not quite an accountant, um, which we'll be talking about later this episode, <laughs> but I definitely have related to a lot of like what Ben Affleck's character in this film did, just like looking at the numbers and trying to understand the story behind it. There's a lot of, I think, a little a little bit of jargon when it comes to that, which I'll do my best to explain. But in order to understand, I think the last year and how Trolls World Tour Part 2 fits into that, kind of the, the high level 101 of box office analysis, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very interested to learn about that. All right. So, you know, obviously the best starting point is, you know, you hear all the time that, hey, such and so movie had an amazing opening weekend, right? And that's a pretty mm-hmm. straightforward idea, right? It's the amount of money that a film makes on a given weekend. Uh, specifically, though, that's generally going to be the Friday through the Sunday, right? So you include Friday, Saturday, Sunday as the box office weekend because that's just when the majority of money gets made at the box office. Now, Friday numbers do include, you know, if a movie opens on Thursday, like Thursday afternoon, back when we used to have like midnight screenings, you know, back then as well, those numbers would get rolled up into the Friday number. And then similarly, you know, there's also holiday weekends. Um, So for example, Shang-Chi opened on Labor Day weekend here in the United States. And so, you know, the numbers when they were reported still do Friday, Saturday, Sunday broken out, but they'll also include Monday numbers then because of the holiday weekend. So that's the opening weekend. Now, you know, obviously a, a very basic idea is then, okay, let's say a film comes out in so many theaters, you can then calculate what the per theater average is of the film. So the per theater average is kind of a measurement of, you know, just in general, given an, an average ticket price across the domestic market, which, by the way, the domestic market, when you hear people say they made so much money domestically, that's both the U.S. and Canada combined just because of the way media works in North America. So a per theater average is the total amount of money the movie made in the U.S. and Canada divided by the total number of theaters available uh, that it was sewing in. So, you know, a wide film like Avengers Endgame will have something like 4,000 theaters, whereas something like, say, Licorice Pizza this year when it opened and only opened in four theaters, right? So, you know, obviously now that means different things for different movies. A big blockbuster obviously will have maybe on its opening weekend somewhere in like the 15 to 20,000 opening weekend. I think Endgame had some ridiculous number, but that's because they did stuff like so extra extra screenings over the weekend. Whereas something like Licorice Pizza, for example, I think had something like an 80,000 per theater average because so few theaters, but it's a lot more concentrated. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, it's useful for movie theater owners because when they see, hey, this film is making me this much money per theater, then they can see, hey, as other films release in the release calendar that have a potential higher per theater average, you can kind of then see which films will get cycled out as their per theater average starts to drop off. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I- think so so for example right like a film if a film opens up right let's say it opens in four thousand theaters to forty thousand dollars or whatever or you know let's say uh, it starts with a per theater average of ten thousand dollars in week one then week two you know you'll generally see that there's fewer people seeing it that weekend right but let's say the number of theaters it stays the same because of contracts with the studios mm-hmm. maybe then it drops down from ten thousand dollars per theater down to eighty five thousand dollars per theater and then each successive week it's going to make less and less and less but at some point you're making less than a thousand dollars per theater but then there's a brand new signing film that's again making ten thousand dollars per theater that's at the point when a theater owner will make the decision hey we're going to stop showing this film that's only making a thousand dollars per theater and instead when this brand new movie that's making five ten thousand dollars per theater basically so that's kind of mm-hmm. like how it leads to over time as people get less interested in the film because they've seen it or they were never going to see it in the first place. That's how films cycle through the cineplex, basically. So films that have a particularly bad performance, you know, they drop really steeply from week to week. You'll see them leave movie theaters really rapidly as opposed to films, you know, that have quote unquote good legs and that stay in theaters for an extended period of time. And we'll, we'll talk about Trolls World Tour, obviously, and that kind of like plays into this to some degree. So kind of to represent that kind of like length of time, uh, or, or how much it changes, there's what's known as a week-over-week drop, right? So let's say mm-hmm. a movie made $100,000 in the first weekend, and then it dropped down to maybe $60,000 in the second week, or $60 million in the second weekend. So from $100 million to $60 million, that is a 40% drop, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, in general, it depends on the genre, depends on the time of year, but week-over-week drop tends to be... I would say a, a decent week over week drop, you want somewhere in like the 45 to 50% range, right? Obviously, the smaller the drop, the better. The bigger the drop, the more disastrous, basically. Now, you know, things like kids' movie tends to have pretty good legs because there's not enough kids' movies out there. And so if parents want to take their kids to the movies, there's like that one kids' movie that just hangs on for a super long period of time. Whereas a horror film, it's a much smaller community. And if you really like horror films, you're going to go first weekend to not be spoiled. So those tend to have a lot steeper drops coming that coming mm-hmm. out of the block. Similarly, you know, films like uh, Marvel films might have slightly steeper drops just because, you know, people fanboys will come out the first weekend to see it so it's kind of over inflates the first weekend and then the second weekend's kind of not as as strong as say another movie whereas films that come out over the holidays or maybe musicals are a good example for this tend to have a repeat audience where they go back to see it multiple times or they go to see it with their family so things that release during the holidays or musicals tend to have longer legs and have have sort of drops basically yeah for example i think i'm living in toronto and i think dear evan hansen was in theaters for two and a half months here oh really <laughs> i think yeah. I, I think the really good example of this is the greatest showman which i think had sub 20 percent drops for like eight weeks in a row overall which is kind of ridiculous just because you know again most films will have about a 45 maybe 50 percent drop mm-hmm. having a sub 20 percent drop for consecutive weeks is almost unheard of so there's this other metric called multiplier which is where you take depends on the source but some people will say it's the very first opening weekend against the total number you divide the total domestic gross against the opening weekend number some people will say total domestic gross divided by the highest opening weekend because you know this is the case of like limited the releases like opens in one or two theaters and then expands out and whatever but in any case generally they're the same thing 
the total gross divided by the opening weekend. So that's called a multiplier. An average film will have maybe a multiplier of about 2.5x. So generally, a film will make domestically about two and a half times its opening weekend over the course of its entire run. Greatest Showman had a had like a 10x multiplier or something. Jeez. Whereas, you know, for example, Batman versus Superman, which released the same year as The Accountant, also with Ben Affleck, did not even get to a 2x multiplier. It was like a 1.99x multiplier, which just kind of shows like how poorly Batman versus Superman was received. So are you guys following along so far? Does that all kind of make sense? You know, opening weekends, week over week drops and, and multipliers? I'm I'm just trying to catch up with multiplier. It's the total gross of the movie so far divided by its opening weekend or divided by its highest weekend. Generally, it's the same thing. Some places say it's always the first weekend. Some places say it's the highest weekend. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's going to be the one and the same. It's all like generally. Again, the opening weekend is generally going to be the highest grossing weekend, just because again, it's when everyone wants to see this. Everyone wants to see the shiny new thing, basically. Are there notable examples where it's not? Generally, like, platform releases. So it's, oh, it opens in, like, one theater for, like, a weekend. And then the next weekend expands out wide or something like that. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so that that's where that that comes in. Now, the last important thing is that when, you know, let's say a movie makes $100 million um, at the box office, that is not all going to the movie studios. So it's something called the theatrical split. And it depends on the studio. Most studios are about 45%, maybe 50%. So that $100 million, half of that goes to the studios, so the Warners, the Universals, the Paramounts. The other half goes to the Cineplexes, the uh, Regals, the, the AMCs. Uh, so mm-hmm. that, so you know, when you say $100 million, that's not it's purely going to the studio. That's that split for them. Disney is a bit of a unique case just because of their clout. They tend to actually demand a little bit stricter terms, I think like 60-40 or something like that. Um, but still, it's generally 50-50. There used to be a thing, which I'm not going to get super into, where it used to be that you know the first weekend, it would be like a variable. So as the weeks goes on, it would be kind of lion's share going to the studios. And then as the week goes on later and later on, it would go to the it, it would sift to that the split would go to the um, studios, but I think that's like a thing of the past. It's now just pretty, pretty much a flat rate, basically. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that when you look at the budget of a film, you know, sometimes the trades like Deadline or Variety will report this film costs this much to make. That does not include marketing and advertising usually. And that will vary, obviously, depending on film. And that's, again, kind of the classic Hollywood accounting where it's like, oh, how much did this film cost to make versus how much it actually made for various reasons, which we'll talk about, like, why that's important. But in general, rule of thumb when you're looking at online, if you know what the budget of a film is, generally, look at the global box office. You'll want about two and a half times its production budget to break even, basically. Now, that may be, in some cases, maybe like 3x, depending. So... That theatrical split of maybe like 45, 50 to theaters and then 50, 55 to studios, that's closer to like 40, 60 in overseas countries. And then in China, it's particularly bad where I think uh, Hollywood studios only take 25% of the box office gross in China back from them. It's just that China is just such a massive country in terms of box office potential that they're willing to do that anyway. But so overall, if a film's maybe slightly more internationally skewed, it might be 3x its budget, but generally two and a half times its budget is what you're looking for for global box office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, just when you brought up Hollywood accounting, I think I remember seeing a story somewhere that throughout its entire theatrical run, despite all of the praise, due or undue, that it got, Bohemian Rhapsody 
was and remains a box office failure because of weird Hollywood accounting. So like the specific people that were promised some cut of the profit never got anything. Right. I don't know if that's true, but like that's that's what oh, I that, heard. That, that is, I think that was on the production team basically because they essentially – Essentially, that specific Bohemian Rhapsody story, which I covered on the on the podcast to, to some degree, was that, yeah, so as you mentioned, certain, and this is a good time to talk about this now, you know, certain individuals, producers, actors, writers are promised, you know, 1%, 2% of total box office profit. And the keyword here is profit, not revenue. Mm. So depending on how they define what is profitable or what the costs are, that is where the, the tricky line comes in for what counts as, as profit or not. And, there, and it's a whole industry, which I'm, again, I'm just an amateur uh, box office analyst, so I don't know all the ins and outs of like all of those different calculations, which obviously are, are, are kind of obfuscated to some degree, but still, right, like at a very high level, the, the concept is, right, so you know, if you have a movie that you really believe in, the Joker is a really good example here. A movie that, you know, Joaquin Phoenix and, and the director really believed in, instead of taking their usual upfront payment fee, they will instead work for a reduced budget in exchange for a higher share of the back end, which, you know, incentivizes them to give as good of a performance as possible in order to actually, you know, have it be a success worldwide and they get a larger payday as a result as opposed to if they had done an upfront cost, which, you know, depending on the studio, if there's a high upfront cost, they may not be willing to front that upfront. And so this movies may simply never get made. M. Night Samalan is a good example of this. He's bankrolled his past couple of movies, old, I believe, and I think Glass also. He's bankrolled his own movies, um, one, for creative control, but also it's less of cost there to him. He, he's not getting paid like a salary upfront, but he gets a larger share of the back-end revenues there. Mm-hmm. Again, this will be relevant with Trolls World Tour later. All right. You know, that's enough for like the 101. Um, I think it, let, let's go to the accountant, right? And not not the analysis we'll do in the second half of the episode, but just kind of like yeah. looking at how it performed, right? So unless you guys have any questions before I get there. Nope. None for me. All right. All right, cool. So this is kind of what I do on the box office watch. Okay, so the accountant opened on October 14, 2016, I believe, to $24.7 million um, in 3,332 theaters. That means its per theater average was about $7,400, $7,416 to be exact. Uh, which is pretty decent. It opened uh, to number one, actually, at the box office that week. So oh, then, wow. Okay. Yeah. So then week two, it dropped about 45% from week one to about $13.6 million, still 3,332 theaters to a per theater average of 4095 So, you know, that's that weekly drop, 45%, pretty average for a uh, film. And you notice, again, per theater average went from seventy four sixteen down to forty ninety five. Um, which mm-hmm. seems that you know most people had seen the film who were going to see the film saw it in the first. So you know there was, is some people still seeing it in theaters, but not as many as before. Now from number one, it dropped down actually to number four that week. There was Tyler Perry's Boo, which opened to twenty eight point five million, uh, twelve thousand per theater average. Jack Reacher Never Go Back was number two, twenty two point eight million with a six thousand per theater average. And then Ouija Origin of Evil was number three, uh, fourteen million opening uh, with a per theater average of. Of about $4,441. So, okay, these are like Halloween movies. Halloween is movies. It's around October. So, mm-hmm. you know, week three comes, it drops 38%, which is again pretty solid, to 9.6 million in 3,402 theaters. So, it actually gained 70 theaters in its third week. Per oh, theater wow. average okay. is $2,493 and still at number four. So, Jack Reacher had dropped 
58%, and Ouija had dropped 49%, but the film Inferno had come in at number two. So it kind of replaced Ouija kind of in the three above above uh, the accountant. And so that's, that's how you see, right? Ouija is a horror film. It has a much steeper drop, and Jack Reacher wasn't particularly well-received. It had like a 58% drop, as opposed to, again, the second week drop of The Accountant was 45%. So that's how you can see like, Jack Reacher, not as well-received a film, has a steeper drop in its second weekend. The Accountant, pretty solid film, 45% drop in its second weekend. So it's going to hang around a little bit longer. You can kind of see where the legs pan out there. And then real quick, just in that third in that third week, it's still number four, right? It's still number four because still uh, number four. We, Ouija drops down below it to number five and Jack Reacher drops down to number three, but then Inferno comes in at number two and Tyler Perry still gotcha. number one. Okay, so then week three, it drops 31%. Again, very solid drops. Um, Accountant actually was a, looking at, when I was looking at it, it was actually a very surprisingly uh, leggy movie for, uh, for, for, especially October tends to be, not the hottest time for box office films to come out. So 31% drop to $5.8 million in 2,688 theaters. So you see here a drop of 714 theaters. You know, it's been in theaters for a month at this point. It's making only per theater average of 2,185 per theaters. And it's dropped down to number six because Dr. Strange opened this weekend to $85 million. Also, another Anna Kendrick movie, the first Trolls movie opened this weekend to $46 million. Um, and also Hacksaw Ridge opened to $15 million. Now, this is like, you know, I think after Halloween at this point. So Tyler Perry's Boo had dropped 55% from the previous weekend and Inferno dropped 59%, dropping below the accountant, basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, not, no, sorry, not below, but still, it dropped, it dropped down below the newcomers. So that's why, you know, accountants at number six. Then week five dropped again, 25%, $4.4 million. 2,342 theaters, that's 346 theater loss per theater average of about $1,800, uh, 1884 Stays at number six still. Again, Tyler Perry and then Inferno being Halloween horror film film themes in November, no longer really relevant. They've dropped off below the accountant in there. But then we also then have Arrival and Almost Christmas taking their place, 24 and 15 million respectively. And then week six is kind of like the turning point. You know, it drops 50, 51%, which is the biggest drop it's had in its entire run at that up to that point to $2.1 million in 1423 through this. So the reason it had a 50% drop is, is it lost, you know, just under half of its movies. It lost 919 movies because this is the week when Fantastic Beasts and Edge of 17 and Bleed mm. for This all open. So it's down to number nine in the box office. So you kind of see how it goes down the charts from number one down to number nine as its per theater average comes in over time and as it loses theaters as bigger and bigger films start coming out into the November Thanksgiving season with Doctor Strange and Fantastic Beasts. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that's kind of interesting because it comes out right around the time that Halloween movies are starting to come out and performs pretty well alongside all these Halloween movies and then stuck around basically until the start of Christmas, despite awards movies start like big high profile awards movies starting to come out during its run too. So like, yeah, it's a weirdly leggy movie. Yeah. So, you know, overall it stayed in theaters for 13 weeks total, which is about an average box office run. It made a domestic total of 86.2 million US dollars. So 
compared to its opening weekend of 24.7, that's a multiplier of about 3.47. Again, that's a very good multiplier. Anything above a 3x multiplier is pretty solid. And again, Batman versus Superman had a 1.99x multiplier. Mm-hmm. Globally, internationally, it made $66.7 million. So the global take uh, overall was $152 million. So now we don't have a reported marketing number. Sometimes the trades will say, oh, you know, this film spent $100 million usually for the biggest films. Mm-hmm. But okay, so let's take a look at, at these numbers then. So it made $86.2 million US dollars. Let's say 50% went to the theaters, 50% went to the studio. So the studio makes $43.1 million from domestic numbers. Internationally, let's say it keeps about 40% internationally. So 40% of the 67.7 million number is $26.68 million. So combined, that's, you know, for the studio, $69.78 million. Again, this is an estimate not actually confirmed by them. The production budget for the accountant was actually $44 million. So it actually, you know, made... Based on box office alone, at least the production budget back and then some. Again, we don't know what the marketing cost was, but one thing we haven't talked about yet is all of the home media. So renting on VOD, buying DVDs, Mm -hmm. you know, selling the rights to streaming services, selling the rights to pay TV services eventually licensing it to, you know, TV channels in order to run, you know, two years later. All of these are additional forms of revenue that the box office stuff doesn't even cover, right? Right. So Overall, you know, The Accountant basically has, I would say, is basically a profitable film for the studio. And actually, I saw when I was researching that last September, I think they announced it's going to be a Accountant 2 with Joe Bernthal and, and Ben Affleck coming back. Because, again, mm-hmm. this is where this, this whole thing comes in. We can see, okay, the film is probably profitable. It makes sense then for them to greenlight a sequel then, basically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's basically Box Office 101 using The Accountant. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, so... Now, obviously, we do have to talk about, again, even though it's not about a Trolls World Tour movie, talk about Trolls World Tour and how that all came about, right? Yes. Okay. Going back, rewinding. So we haven't talked about the theatrical window. And historically, obviously, before home media, right, the only place you would see a film was in theaters, right? Obviously, the rise mm-hmm. of the VHS and DVD came out. And, you know, there's obviously the whole hullabaloo of like, oh, this is going to like kill media or whatever. It, spoilers, it didn't. But there's a tension, right? movie theaters make their money by having people in seats because of that exclusivity, right? And obviously they make really the margin on the concessions, but obviously for studios, they want to actualize as much revenue as possible. They don't care where it comes from, especially when you think about it. If they're having to share 50% of the profits with the movie theaters, they get to keep all the profits from home media. They're incentivized to really want people to see things more on home media than in theaters, right? Now, Mm -hmm. there are reasons why having a strong box office performance feeds into a strong at-home media performance. But, you know, in general, there's been tension between the two. Historically, it used to be six months between when it comes out in theaters to when it would show up at home media. Over the last several years, you know, as DVD sales became less and less important, it soared into about 90 days, uh, so about three months for physical media, about 75 days for digital self-view, so VOD, basically. Right. So if a film has a really strong box office performance, you can use that to point to people you're licensing the film to and say, look, this made a lot of money at the box office. We can negotiate a higher licensing fee to you guys because we know it's in-demand film. Right. Mm-hmm. Similarly, like you're cutting off the legs of the film. If it's available at home, you know people are not going to go see it in theaters. And while yes, home media does make a part of the profit for films, it's still by far the lion's share of money 
for a studio making on the film, aside from merchandising, will come from the box office. Mm -hmm. And then the other part, kind of not the studio's interest, but kind of socially, um, smaller theaters like have a smaller margin, and they it's harder for smaller art house theaters to really deal with shortened windows, basically, as a result, because they can't make the numbers work for them as a result. Now, one of the pros of shortening windows is that uh, you have fewer marketing costs. You know, if it's going to come out within a month from you know, coming out in theaters and then on video, um, as opposed to a three-month period, you have sort of marketing costs as a studio for that, basically. And again, you can actualize the revenue sooner. Mm -hmm. Okay, so pre-pandemic, three-month period, you know, there's a lot of, you know, some attempts by studios to push the three-month window doesn't really go anywhere. Cue the pandemic, right? So, you know, obviously stuff like The Invisible Man, Onward, Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, films that came out just before the pandemic, they go straight to DVD. They don't wait that 75 days. They go on like 12, 21 days or whatever from their theatrical release to at home because, you know, we're at home. We want to watch stuff. Studios are taking advantage of that since there's clearly movies not going to come back for a little bit, right? Well, and at this point, uh, movie theaters were also closed in many exactly. parts of the world. Exactly, right? So, okay, come, you know, April or so, right? I, I, this is, again, me just starting my box office podcast. Trolls World Tour comes out, right? Um, or is going mm -hmm. to come out. Now, Universal was the studio behind Trolls World Tour, and they announced that, hey, we're going to send Trolls World Tour straight to VOD. And, you know, this is understandable. Studios don't make a big stink about it at the time because, hey, it's understandable. World closed. You need to get your movies out there, whatever. Understandable given the pandemic. The real hullabaloo came after the release. So, Allegedly, right, they say, and this is another thing that bothers me specifically about things moving day and date, is that studios don't release their numbers unless they're good for them on how things they do. So I can't do the analysis. That's my selfish, uh, that's yeah. my own selfish problem with this whole day and date situation. But they release it, they say allegedly, oh, we made $100 million over three weeks um, with Trolls World Tour, which is, you know, one thing is that. On VOD sales, if you're selling on Amazon or Apple or Google Play or whatever, the rev sales is a lot more profitable for studios. They keep about 80% of the rental fee, only 20% to the VOD platforms as opposed to the 50-50 split, right? So that's clearly an incentive for studios to want to have things on VOD. And, you know, 80% of $100 million over three weeks versus 50% of $150 million is actually in favor of things coming out on VOD at that point, basically. Mm -hmm. So Universal says, hey, this is really good for us. We're going to try to do this again in the future. And that's what pisses off AMC and all the other studios, where they're like, if you do this again, when we have a movie theaters open, we are going to blacklist all of Universal Films from AMC because you need to respect the theatrical windows, basically. So that's the first kind of opening salvo, so to speak, in this kind of like attack on, on theatrical windows at this point. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense so far. So now looking at the numbers, I was doing an episode around this time, and I found, I think, a couple of reasons why Universal might have been okay with this. Deadline puts out some numbers about how much their movies make. Um, they get like, like insider information on how much they make and so on. It looks like Universal films actually aren't profitable from box office alone. They become profitable when they come out on TV, basically, and the, the and all the sell through after the VOD stuff afterwards. Whereas studios like Disney, you know, which has the MCU and all that, they do tend to have more profitable films off of box office alone. The other part, Universal mm -hmm. being part of Comcast, who would benefit greatly from people selling on VOD, would probably benefit more. So there's a, that other element to it as well. Now, worth noting, we mentioned you know Revser. 
Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick both had back-end bonuses from Trolls World Tour. You know, they were going to make money on box office numbers. There is no box office numbers. So then there was a report I saw that the lawyers were trying to get Universal to pay them some sort of compensation for this, basically. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any rec- if they ever settled it or anything, but I know that was the case that they were at least trying to get it back to some degree. And they were apparently not warned that they was going to go to a theatrical-only release. Otherwise, they would have negotiated a higher upfront cost if they had known they wouldn't be getting any box office numbers on the back end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this became an issue for a number of different actors. I'm sure right. you we'll, probably covered the Scarlett Johansson yeah, yeah. one we'll, at some we'll, point. We'll get to that. So, okay. Yeah. So then, okay, so this was in April 2020. So Fast forward to June, it looks like Tenet's going to open in theaters. You know, it keeps getting pushed back, but it still does. AMC and Universal, the same two people who were fighting, actually signed a deal that depending on opening number weekends, the films will have a variable theatrical window. So 17 days for under 50 million opening weekend or 30 days for over 50 million. In exchange for this sort of window, AMC actually will take some percentage. It's not made sure exactly what the percentage is, but some percentage of the VOD sales of that film, basically, that's coming out in a sort of theatrical window. So, you know, this is the first move from a 90-day all the way down to 17, maybe 30-day theatrical window for Universal Films specifically. Mm -hmm. So that's how stuff like, and this is anything under the Universal, I think Promising Young Woman, for example, was released under this model, for example, last year, because they were on their, uh, their art house label. So then, okay, Tenet comes out, it, in hindsight, Tenet did okay, but it didn't blow up everyone's box office, and people are worried about the box office. Things keep getting pushed back and so on. So then comes December, which is like the next really big shift to the box office. HBO Max. So, you know, they basically, first with Wonder Woman, they had announced, oh, we're going to do Wonder Woman direct to HBO Max and also in theaters, right? They, so so-called day and date. But then at like an investor call or something, they basically announced, hey, we are going to do this for an entire film slate, for 2021, all of our films will be day and date on HBO Max and in theaters, basically. And like with Trolls World Tour, they did not tell anyone about this in advance, basically. They told some of the movie chains like maybe an hour in advance. They didn't tell any of the directors, any of their actors about this, um, which pissed everyone off, most notably Chris Nolan. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, you know. In hindsight, what they ended up having to do to compensate people like, you know, with the Justin Timberlake, Scarlett, and, and Anna Kendrick situation is they had to treat all of their films as if they had performed amazingly at the box office and pay out that box office number to them, to all of their talent, basically. I think they had to pay, like, Legendary or something, some stupid amount of money um, in order for Dune and Godzilla vs. Kong to, to stay on the theater because they only handle distribution, not production. I think, like, you know, we've heard about, like, Will Smith recently with King Richard getting paid $40 million. So Will Smith's normal fee is $20 million. He got paid another $20 million on top of this for King Richard. So, you know, that was a whole hullabaloo, basically. Now... Pros and cons of this, pros, uh, Warner Brothers was able to release all of their films last year, even if they had reduced box office. And that did keep movie theaters alive. It did give them something to have in theaters. The downside, obviously, is that day and date numbers actually just don't work out in terms of retention. And what we talked about earlier, week over week drops, those were mm-hmm. annihilated. The opening weekend numbers, a lot lower than they would have been. I, I like Dune, I think, opened to like $40 million. I think, based on the reception it had, it probably would have done like could have gotten close to that $100 million mark for Dune. It could have made a lot more money domestically if it wasn't available on day and date, basically. 
Mm-hmm. Kind of encoded to all this is that for HBO Max, they have since made an agreement with theaters for 2022. So now onward, their films will have a 45-day window. And that's kind of where the industry, I think, is settling on, about a 45-day theatrical window, basically. So, And a big part of this is the push to streaming, right? A lot of studios, in fact, all of the big studios except Sony, have a big streaming ser- service, right? Disney has Disney+, Plus, HBO Max for Warner, obviously. We have Peacock and Paramount Plus as well. They exist. Um, and then Sony doesn't really have one unless you count Crunchyroll Funimation for anime, which doesn't really count in this situation. So mm-hmm. obviously all of these studios are a lot more interested in we need to have stuff on our seeming platforms to follow the Netflix model, basically, right? Right. So Q Black Widow, and this is kind of like the last, yeah, this is kind of like the last big kind of attack, so to speak, on, on theatrical windows where Black Widow opens day and date, and it makes $80 million domestic opening weekend, $79 million internationally, and it makes $67 million on Premier Access. Um, again, Disney keeps between 80 and 100% of Premier Access numbers as opposed to sharing it 50-50 with theaters, which is all well and good. However... So I mentioned how you know about a 50% drop is what you want. Uh, the accountant had about a 45% drop. Guess how steep the Black Widow second weekend drop was? I'm going to guess 70%. You're very close. It is actually 67%. That is, though, the steepest drop in the MCU to date. Um, the average MCU film drops about 55% or so. So it drops 67% to $25.8 million domestically in its second weekend. Over 14 weeks, it made 183 million domestically. Its multiplier ended up being a 2.29x. Again, this, this is the second lowest in the MCU, just ahead of uh, Civil War, which had a 2.28 multiplier. Overall, it made 375 million globally, when about a, about 125 million on Premier Access, which a larger share of the Premier Access budget. So, and this is off of a 200 million dollar budget, right? So, overall, I would say somewhere about, I would say it made about 500 million total or so. Mm-hmm. Based on rev sales and all that. And obviously, as as you mentioned, there's a whole lawsuit, right? Scarlett Johansson was trying to sue for, hey, we thought Black Widow was going to make more. Was it going to be theatrically open? It did not. So then Shang-Chi comes along Labor Day weekend. It opens to 75 million domestically, theatrically only, and it dropped 54%, but that's because it's on Labor Day weekend. So higher, you know, higher weekend, holiday weekend versus a normal weekend is going to have a higher drop. But over 13 weeks, it made $224.5 million on a 2.98 multiplier, which is you know, almost you know, much higher than, than what uh, Black Widow's multiplier did. And it made $417 million globally, again, on a $150 million production budget. So mm-hmm. overall, you know, Shang-Chi needed 375 to break even. It made $417 million, which granted, not as much as what Black Widow did. But if you think it's a new character, you know, it had a smaller production budget. It was arguably the more profitable film for Disney overall. And also the fact that Black Widow had, came out on Premiere Access, we had to pay an extra $30. They did not get any VOD sales also for, for Disney, for Black Widow. They still got the VOD sales for Shang-Chi on Fandango and Amazon Prime and iTunes, which they did not mm-hmm. get for Black Widow. So that's another revenue stream, which they cut off with Premiere Access, basically. So afterwards, Disney basically announced that all of their films afterwards would also have a 45-day theatrical window, basically. Huh, okay. So kind of to sum up where we are then right now, beginning of 2022 with Box Office, 45-day theatrical window, basically where we're at. Platform releases, you know, the super small films really struggling right now because the art house circuit just can't make it work right now. Partly of that is that the 
you know, Art House Circus is is, sir, is visited by older audience members, and generally those are the, that's the audience that's been least likely to come back to the box office at this point in time, basically. Mm-hmm. So they're the ones talking the most. So you had to be a really big budget film like No Way Home, for example, or really not anything working out. Omicron obviously is is delaying things again. Turning Red, um, the the newest Pixar film, is going to come direct to to Disney Plus again, which there are other reasons for that. But you know, Omicron's coming back. And the last thing to mention, I think, is Netflix. So Netflix, you know, Red Notice, for example, Gal Gadot, The Rock, Ryan Reynolds, biggest watched film of all time. Don't Look Up, also doing pretty well as well. Shout out to Losing It Over Leo. Um, <laughs> I'm Gatsby. Now, there's an interesting thing here where Netflix, they, they've obviously never played by theatrical windows. Like, they've been blacklisted from AMC's, like, best picture uh, showcase because Netflix films like The Irishman did not respect theatrical windows and, and AMC didn't want to sew them. They are actually starting to play ball with theatrical windows. Like, a lot of their Oscar contenders this year had a two week theatrical window before coming to Netflix, on, you know, granted, mm-hmm. in like limited theaters. And they said, they supposedly said they're going to have fewer productions next year because they want to space them out and have more theatrical releases to have more cultural cachet because, you know, the way Netflix works, there's just so much content on there. It's there one week in the top 10 and then it's dropped off by then. That's the equivalent of like, there's just so much stuff online that your week over week drop of engagement is just so steep that they want Mm -hmm. to have a little bit more engagement by having it in theaters a little bit more. Then the other thing for Netflix is that actors are getting paid more because there is no box office number for them. They're getting paid more upfront, which makes it for, which also because Netflix has less creative control over projects, they tend to, a lot of creatives are actually moving from the big studios to Netflix because of, you know, higher payday upfront and more creative control, even if you don't, you lose out on that box office backend number, basically. Yeah, we've talked quite a bit on our other podcast about how a lot of movies on Netflix seem like, for better or worse in most cases, the director was basically given free reign, which sometimes works and sometimes right. does not. So yeah, that's what I have for Box Office One One. I know it ran a little bit long, um, but you know, hopefully this was helpful for you guys and also to understand the accountant a little bit more as well. Thank you, first off, for doing that. I actually, I I learned a lot. I was taking notes. I hope that I took good notes. Yeah, we've talked at this point so many times about Trolls World Tour that in our last episode about it, I think afterwards off the air, I was like, we need to actually get an expert in here to explain Trolls World Tour because we've talked about it so much. It always leads to a long conversation, but like, I don't know what I'm talking about as much as I wish I did. We got to get someone who knows what they're talking about. Glad to be a service. So yeah, actually, we're just about to move on. But just before we do, I think you had prepared some some interesting trivia about yeah. Anna Kendrick's yeah. box office so, performances. So in lieu of me being uh, not, not having watched a lot of Anna Kendrick movies and having a strong opinion on her films and ranking and so on, um, some some Anna Kendrick t- box office trivia. So the highest grossing films are no surprise the Twilight films. You know, the highest grossing film was, I think, Eclipse, made $706 million globally. It had a 4.64x multiplier, basically. The first Twilight film, I think, made had a 2.77x multiplier. And then Breaking Dawn Part 1 had a 2.04x multiplier, which kind of speaks to the quality of those films. Uh, cumul- That's really shocking. Yeah. The, the last movie, or the second to last movie in the series, just 
basically died at yeah. the box office. Uh, yeah, and then cumulatively, the entire Twilight fantasy. So this includes Breaking Down Part 2, which Anna Kendrick, I believe, is not in. But off of a cumulative $418 million budget, it made $1.3 billion at the domestic box office and $3.3 billion globally. And then also, so th- that was obviously Anna Kendrick in a supporting role. Mm-hmm. Another supporting role she was in was uh, Into the Woods, um, which made $128 million domestically, $212 million globally, $56 million on a $56 million production budget. So had, again, this is a Christmas time musical, had a 4.12x multiplier. And then The Accountant is her sixth highest uh, supporting, act, supporting role film. Um, but if you want to get to the stuff that she's a lead in, kind of the top 10, uh, we have Trolls at number one. 343 million globally, uh, 3.3x multiplier. Um, then we have Pitch Perfect 2, 287 million globally, 266x multiplier. Pitch Perfect 3, 185 million globally, which is a 5.26x multiplier, though that was also, I believe, during the holiday period as well. And then actually, her first film ever as a lead, Up in the Air, was uh, her fourth highest uh, grossing uh, lead film. Um, it made oh, wow. 166 million globally out of a $25 million budget. And this is kind of insane. It had a 7.44x multiplier, actually. Oh my God. Yeah. And then Pitch Perfect rounds out the top five at $116 million, but on a 4.38x multiplier. Uh, and then the, the five through six are uh, six through 10 are Paranorman, uh, a simple favor, uh, what to expect when you're expecting, and then Mike and Dave need wedding, fa- uh, wedding, wedding dates to kind of make up the last, the, the other films that are, that opened wide, basically. So those are all her wide opening films. About Pitch Perfect specifically, because obviously that's kind of the, what she's probably best known for, I think. So cumulatively, on a $91 million budget, uh, they made $354 million uh, domestically and then $588 million globally, actually. So it's just pretty solid, right? $588 million mm-hmm. off of a $91 million production budget. I'm surprised there's no Pitch Perfect 4 at this point. I mean, having watched the yeah. third one, I'm not surprised, but that doesn't come from a financial perspective. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, the last bit of trivia I had is that, you know, her, her lowest grossing film at the box office uh, was Happy Christmas, uh, which made $30,000 in nine theaters in limited run. So it had a 4.03x multiplier, but again, very, very small release. And when it was basically just in theaters uh, for like a, a couple of weeks before going straight to VOD and, and straight to DVD, basically. So that shouldn't be shocking to me because when we talked about Happy Christmas, we did touch on the fact that it had one of the weirdest release schedules I think I've ever seen for what is ostensibly a Christmas movie. But it is shocking to me because just recently we watched a movie called The Mark Peace Experience, which I was under the impression was buried and no one had seen this and somehow it did better at the box office than yeah happy christmas i mean happy christmas was the only nine theaters i can look up let me look up the the mark peace mark peace experience i think was only well i think it was in 10 so you know what just in terms of numbers that's that's one more theater yeah mark peace experience made interestingly so it made domestically it made less it made only four thousand dollars domestically uh wow but Apparently, internationally, it made $390,000, which I can't, I can't find what country it, it was in, but apparently it made, it made that much overseas, basically. So it's all overseas, basically. It must have killed in Uruguay or something. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I got for Anna Kendrick at the box office. All right, and I guess we're about to talk about number six at the box office. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk about The Accountant. 
Hello, I'm Mark, co-director for the upcoming Academy of Death Races Festival 2022. The AODR Festival is an international online celebration of some of the year's best short films, as well as showcasing some great upcoming talent in LGBT filmmaking. Join us from January 14th to the 30th to see award-winning films from all around the world that have been shown at Cannes, South by Southwest, Tribeca, Sundance, London, Toronto, LA and more. You can grab your full festival pass now for only $15 over at AODR.net. Don't miss your opportunity to see the best short films of the year before the Oscars at AODR.net. Hello everyone, welcome back from the break. After that box office analysis segment, we are here to talk more specifically about The Accountant, one more segment of the Anna Kendrick saga. This one, relatively recently, 2016, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. uh, starring Ben Affleck and directed by some guy I don't really know that well. Gavin O'Connor. Yeah, and he's directed some like relatively big movies, but none of them really like seem to stick out. At least for me, I haven't heard of Miracle, and I haven't heard of The Way Back, which it came out last year too. The Way Back, that's a sports drama with Ben Affleck. I hadn't seen it, but I know that a guy that I worked in the same lab as was very, very excited for this movie. Oh, uh, well, maybe, and, was he a big fan of The Accountant? <laughs> that might well. Be maybe he's a big basketball guy and it's a basketball movie so that's why he was excited for it i remember that when it came out not for very long but when it came out it was in very very early oscar conversation it did not stay in conversation for very long but like anytime something comes out early enough in the year and someone likes it enough someone on twitter will say you know what i think ben affleck should get an oscar for this basketball movie and then Enough people agreed for about a week, and then they stopped caring, pretty much. That is um, that is unfortunate. Paulo, have you heard of uh, Gavin O'Connor? I have not. <laughs> cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> unfortunate. Wait, wait Paulo, do you, do you want to maybe give us a summary of the movie? Do you feel like yeah. you could... Yeah, so I saw this you know, earlier this week um, at you guys' request, and basically Ben Affleck plays an individual with high functioning autism which i have some thoughts on the way that that, that that's portrayed in here um or rather the dad's response to autism is it portrayed in here um mm. but he basically acts as essentially the guy who goes in and basically unfucks uh, oh sorry i'm allowed to curse on here you are. That's okay. Okay. Uh, so he he's the guy who goes and then unfucks the books for various uh, criminal organizations to make sure that, hey, is someone scamming the scammers, basically? He figures that out for them. And he has a front as like a IRS, you know, accountant, basically. It's it's a story about him dealing with his autism uh, at this point in his life, undoing the books for a seemingly legit business while the treasury department tries to go after him, basically, for all of his work uh, with the criminal organizations. That's the best I can talk about it uh, i guess uh, anna kendrick plays the accountant at the firm that he's helping out who's the one who initially discovered the accounting error that they, that leads to him being called in mm-hmm. i guess i would only add that uh, not only is the treasury department going after him but also someone else which i guess would be probably a spoiler to say for sure but people with guns are also going after him so this is partially an action movie yeah somehow you somehow action movie mixed with accountant you wouldn't expect that yeah, it's it's an interesting mix. Um, Pierre, do you think that mix worked out? Yeah, I was gonna ask you the same. 
Not really. I, I think The Accountant feels like a movie that has a lot it's trying to say but and do, but in the end doesn't really accomplish any of them and just feels kind of a weird mix of half-baked ideas that don't really, I guess, point towards, like, conclude with anything, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say, At like, least it, in my opinion. I would say it does a lot of stuff. I wouldn't think, I don't think it's trying to say anything, <laughs> rather. Yeah, I think, I think I can agree with that. To me, it feels like there, there was a time, and it actually might have been right around 2016, where I personally felt like we were getting a lot of people trying to remake the Bourne movies, just with like, you know, shadowy, shadowy government action man is doing things that are action-y. And uh, this is why you should eat popcorn for an hour and a half in the seat watching our movie. If this wasn't part of that trend, time-wise, it, it still kind of was content-wise. Basically, it was boring. Like, there's, there's not a lot interesting that's happening here. I don't know, man. Like, the scene when he takes, like, the 15 years of books and then just starts writing on the whiteboard and then the walls. I mean, again, maybe that's just because I'm, like, a data analyst in my day job. But, like, that was, like, very gripping to me. No, I, I actually agree. So I think I, this is a weird movie where it's half action, half math. Yeah. And the action part, I kind of just wish that they cut that out. Exactly. Because the math was they, so exciting. It's, like, it's, it's almost like the... Um, it's like you know, I think if it stuck to like the math, the math and like the discovery, like it reminds me to some degree a lesser version of like The Post, for example, mm-hmm. um, which was like an Oscar film like a couple of years back, which like, you know, investigative journalism, right? Like those kinds of like, hey, let's try to figure this thing out. But it's, you know, white collar investigative journalism, basically. Same thing for like, hey, white collar discovering crimes through financial records, basically. Again, maybe for the most audience, not that gripping, but at least for me personally, I think that kind of like, hey, I think this goes back to like why like box office stuff is like, hey, there's a story in these numbers we can tell. And I think they had clued into the more like, hey, what is the story going on in here? Like, yeah, there was this like it felt kind of like, oh, crypto hacking, like whatever. And he's like mumbling some words as he's writing numbers up there. It's like, okay, that's not really how you would like like put those numbers together in your head, perhaps. But you know, it, it's that that the idea that, hey, we're gonna do this digging, I think that if that had been extended, I would have liked that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that just points towards, like, the, like, if they committed to, like, that aspect, it would would have been, like, way more, I don't know, just engaging, I guess, right? But that's the thing, like, I think mixed, like, I thought, like, even, like, the action was really well done, but we get so little of it that it doesn't really pay off to me in any way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it it just feels kind of tacked on and unnecessary to the main plot. Yeah, I think action-wise... It would have been super cool if they had been like a little bit more John Wick. And yeah, that's a cap cop out. Everything should be more like John Wick. But like sure. there's at one point where like they again, spoiler slight spoilers, but they basically say he took out nine guys, all headshots or single strikes or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like and then I will say they did a really good job there. I think it was like they used the Indonesian martial art of Pen Coxilat or something like that as the martial mm-hmm. arts here. That was really cool to see them using that martial arts. It's always cool to see like these lesser known martial arts get a little bit of a shine mm-hmm. in these accent films. Yeah, I think like if they had gone like, you know, again, he's like a high functioning person with autism and it's like, okay, how does that, I, maybe maybe that's not like the best depiction of autism, but it's like it gives him like this, you know, this cold calculated accountant way to like, I'm going to calculate how I'm going to take you out with like a singular strike, very John Wick style. That would have been super cool and stylized as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just, it had those two aspects and it didn't commit enough to either of them to really stand out as something 
really unique. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, uh, like, the way it, I don't know, really puts forward the, like, I, I can't say I've seen a movie where the protagonist, like, is autistic. This, uh, the only other movie I can think of is, like, maybe the movie Predator, but that's, like, a lot different and uh, wasn't very good. Yeah. But, yeah, I at least say, not so, like, blatantly doing it. Um, like, yeah, confirmed. I mean, okay, I, mean, I don't have autism, right? And and so I can't really speak how well it does or it does not portray autism and, and how, you know, people deal with it. And obviously it's on a spectrum, right? That's, that's why it's called a spectrum. That said, I don't know. It's like, again, mild spoilers, like, oh, he is supposed to get this. And this is like in the first, like, two minutes of the film. Like, oh, this, this neurologist says, oh, he's supposed to get this help to, like, help him, you know, acclimate to his, get used to his surroundings and, you know, learn how to use his talents. And his dad's like, no, I am tough army guy. I'm going to essentially force my kid to go through everything that makes him uncomfortable to make him stronger, basically. And, like... Know, even though it leads to this movie of him being able to do all of this cool action stuff, it's also like I can't really say this is like a good thing to want to show that you should do this for your autistic child. That's slightly questionable, if not very questionable. Well, I mean, in most movies where you have a similar, a, a parent doing a similar thing for their child, even if the child is completely neurotypical and everything, that's usually portrayed as child abuse. Yeah. So it's it's weird that I'm not going to say it's positively portrayed in this movie, but it's pretty neutrally portrayed. Well, just the fact that, like, the dad is like, oh, he ends up getting all of these, you know, almost like superhuman abilities almost, right, to, to be able mm-hmm. to do all this um, through the child and, and eventually self-abuse that he puts himself through later on in life, right? Mm-hmm. To move on to talking about a little bit of directing a little bit, the scenes in the beginning were just kind of showed how he – like who who so non-verbally, right? Like so, for example, the scene where like he's cooking his dinner or whatever, right? And then, like he has mm-hmm. only th- exactly three utensils, exactly one plate, cooks, arranges his food in the exact manner on his plate, and then even like he has like that window in his kitchen, and like he's perfectly framed within that. Like that's like probably the only real shot where like it really stood out to me that like oh, this is like a really cool way of showing like his semi-OCD tend- tendencies. Mm-hmm. The directing for this movie, it all really works in service of Ben Affleck's character. And I also have a hard time speaking to the portrayal of autism because I don't really have a lot of experience there. So I can't speak to whether or not it's a good or a bad portrayal. But I do think that the character that they created is interesting and that all of the movie seems to work in service of that character. It really works out well. It's why when I heard that there was going to be a sequel, I am interested because Ben Affleck has created a really cool character here. Yeah, I saw a review that like, yeah, of the two Ben Affleck movies this year, the other being Batman versus Superman, this one has more sequel, more franchise potential than the (laughs) other one. Yeah, I saw that one too. And that is just one of the most savage burns of (laughs) Batman v Superman I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Do we do spoilers on here or no? Typically, yes. But like, thank you for asking, because if anyone wants to see The Accountant and they don't want to be spoiled, this is your last chance. This is your spoiler warning. All right, go ahead. All right. I will say my wife who was watching it with me actually called that Joe Bernthal's character was going to end up being his brother by the end, uh, which I actually, like, for some reason, did not pick up on going into it. So shout out to mm-hmm. my wife for, for picking that up. But yeah, I mean, I, don't know, I think writing-wise, like, 
the narrative was okay. I mean, it was it was like the weird like flashback, flash forward thing. Um, I will say I do like J.K. Simmons' character. Um, but then again, I like J.K. Simmons in literally everything he's in. I don't, I can't yeah. think of a bad J.K. Simmons role that he's played. I will say, and this gets to this episode's uh, this podcast topic, Anna Kendrick. I don't know how I feel about like the like what he was what they were going for there between like the quasi feelings relationship thing going on there. I'm not. I'm, I don't know. It felt. Like what you say, like they everything that they did was in service of developing this character of Ben Affleck. It feels like the whole Anna Kendrick like side route was like a not was like a departure to, of that to some degree. I mean, I get that like he wants to develop a connection mm-hmm. with another human being, and he just doesn't know how. And that's kind of like the whole point of his character not being able to socially interact with other people. But then it's like, okay, why her character specifically? out of all the other that people he's interacted with before and uh, like where does that whole thread go i don't know what that's actually going for especially if it's later revealed you know he does have that one person he is able to relate to at the very end well and anna kendrick just kind of gets dropped halfway through (laughs) there's around around the halfway mark of this movie everything from the first half is uh not ignored, but just kind of like doesn't come back for a bit. 45 minutes in, we start spending more time with J.K. Simmons, and we do that for like 20 minutes. And then we see Ben Affleck again, but like there's no Anna Kendrick now, and she comes back at the very end. So it was um, a little strange, and personally I found that a little disappointing because I thought that Anna Kendrick and Ben Affleck in this had really good chemistry. Like, they played off each other really well. Like, when Anna, every time Anna Kendrick, like, tried to tell a joke and Ben Affleck took it really literally and, like, asked her to explain the joke, I thought that worked, like, every time. Mm. Um, but, yeah, Pierre, what did you think? Of Anna Kendrick? Yeah. Uh, I, I felt it was a little too... Uh, it felt like they were really forcing, like, a tragic storyline, if that makes sense. Like, oh, like, like, he cares about her, but he's autistic, so he, he can't be with her or whatever. And it, it just felt very, like, I don't know. It it, it, it was, like, I wish we just kind of got more of a, like, a straightforward, he's getting stuff done. And I, I feel like with all the backstory, like, there was so much backstory, um, like, talking about how he's such a tragic character. Um, and then we have this other love story that talks about how he's, like, a tragic character that he can't love anyone. Or, and it just it if, express if, its love, yeah. Yeah, and it just felt really forced to me. Like maybe if they cut like all the backstory out and just focused on like maybe that, then that would add like the more sympathetic. Like, okay, I understand that like he is tragic, but it just felt like it was overburdening me with like this whole. Just they they wanted me to feel really bad for Ben Affleck, and I get like that's like that's kind of the point of the plot line, but it was just it was too much for me and I think the Anna Kendrick character it, it just felt kind of like a little like oh she she's she's nice to him but like she doesn't it didn't feel like she actually like related like the whole plot yeah. the whole line where she's like oh I understand because I wanted a dress in high school or something like that felt <laughs> a little like like do you really understand <laughs> like yeah. that feels a little forced to me you know yeah um, because she's just like yeah I, I get what it's like you know so so, do you guys mind if I do a little script doctor right now? 
Sure. Absolutely. Let, 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 let's fix the accountant. So the accountant, right? <laughs> take out the accent bits, make it, you know, a pure, you know, he, I mean, sir, maybe have a little bit of accent in there, but have it be like John Wick-esque, right? Like, you know, also the scene where he, like he was sniper rifling like those melons like a mile away or whatever. Amazing. I w- wanted more of that kind of thing where it's like, okay, like, you know, you guys know the character Amadeus Cho from, from the comic book, from Marvel comic books? I've heard of him, yeah. So he's basically think, yeah. he's basically one of the smartest people in, on on the earth, and he he does stuff like I will move my moped mirror a certain angle to throw off the guidance system of this ICBM missile or whatever, right? So like mm-hmm. doing those kind of like crazy math calculations in his head or whatever, right? So have Ben Affleck's character be smarter when he fights, not necessarily tougher, where he has this, he has like this super intelligence. Um, I, I don't know, maybe that's like an insensitive way of, of sowing autism. Um, again, I don't want to like be disrespectful in that regard, but assuming it is, and you get like the the cultural, you know, ap- approval of like a, a, con- a consultant and all that, he has, he's really good at these calculations and then he's able to then, or even make it not autistic, maybe to make him like a super good mathematical person, right? Mm. So it's a pure financial thing. He's look, going through trying to find these numbers. Anna Kendrick's character is the person still who discovers it initially and, and who is the reason he's brought in. And yeah, maybe there's like not some chemistry with them initially, but then it turns out that, oh, she compliments what he lacks. Like he's able to look at the numbers really well, but he can't tell the context. He doesn't know the story behind the numbers. He doesn't know the real world stuff behind it and sees the person who comes in and shows him there's more to the world than just your pure numbers. You basically can come like, see, he's the one who can figure out what do these numbers mean, but she's the one who provides the context that would not be shown within the numbers. And I think that would be an interesting way for her character to develop in there or even simpler, which I don't think they even did here, have her be like the pure like audience surrogate where he explains everything he's doing to her, basically, basically, uh, to some mm-hmm. degree, um, which they didn't even do here all that much as well, right? Like, in some degree, she also got lost in the numbers and explaining things back to him, which in, in jargon and mumbo jumbo, which the audience may not have been able to pick up on, have her be the one that they're explaining the things to, basically, I think, um, would be another way to, to fix that character, I think. Yeah, I agree entirely. That would be a much better... I want to see that movie. Yeah, it would have been nice if they gave her like something to do. That, that's a really good point. Yeah, and then when it comes down to like, you know, the action sequences, again, do the whole, like, okay, I will calculate all of these things, basically, or whatever. And then she's also the one who provides a little bit more practical knowledge outside of the uh, you know pure numbers and spreadsheets, basically. Mm. Yeah. As for the action sequences, more math. If you can build math into your action sequences, I'm on board. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I didn't spend eight years in university for math for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have honestly, like, I think, like, if they just made it, like, more of a born, like, because you had the, sub, the subplot with, like, J.K. Simmons, like, trying to find out who the accountant is or whatever. But it's it's almost like they shot all of that, like, in a reshoot because they never really interact with the main plot like at all mm-hmm. and it's it's like it, it feels very tacked on so it would have been nice if they combined those plot lines more like they're trying to they're actually trying to chase him and find out who he is and then like yeah you could i think if you cut out all the backstory you you like this movie could have been an, like an hour and 40 minutes i think it was definitely way too long mm-hmm. pacing was weird especially dude that the jk simmons flashback sequence while really good was really long and a really weird part of the movie it's like 10 minutes of straight <laughs> exposition and flashbacks 
at like the start of the third act, which is like the worst place to put that stuff in. And it was oh, I say, though you can't say that Jackie Simmons didn't sell it. No, everything he had. No. no, yeah, he was amazing in, in those scenes, right? And like they were amazing in itself. But a big part of me was just like, why is this happening now? Like <laughs> it, it breaks the momentum completely. And, and again, like none of that really pays off it, it like some of it pays off in the end because it gives like even more backstory for the accountant but it's like i didn't need any more and it's like it doesn't really pay off for the jk simmons character that much because an interesting way to take it would have been if like he's on one end he's still playing script doctor he's on one end obviously he's helping these criminal organizations through his math and accounting and then, like, the agent on the Treasury side, right, I think, like, Mary Beth Medina was the character's name. They almost, like, have, like, this cat and mouse game where they almost, like, you know, they, they develop a respect for each other through, like, the math that they do. Like, mm. they do to try to counteract each other, basically, somehow. Yeah, and, like, all the elements you would need for that to work are there. They just didn't quite do that in this movie maybe that'll become a bigger part of the accountant too i'm really hoping that like most of the things that you've said are things that people in the writing room for the accountant too have already thought of gary gavin o'connor my 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 cell phone is open (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's it's definitely set up like it felt very sequely it reminded me a little bit of like mad max where he's just like a character that roams around and he's kind of a like maybe a local legend or whatever that very few people know of. He gets involved in certain people's lives for a certain period of time and then leaves and like helps them, I guess. That's what it kind of felt like, like kind of antho- anthological, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like this, this should have been like a TV show or something. It, it felt like the pilot of a TV show. Well, Ben Affleck has expressed doing this as a TV show, though there's no concrete plans that I've heard of. Mm. Yeah. I will say that, like, the numbers, maybe this is just me, the numbers that I heard kind of threw me off. Like, oh, he makes an annual $1 million donation to this, like, to this autism center in, like, in Connecticut or whatever. And it's like, a million dollar donation, I mean, that's not nothing, but also, like, enough to, like, support an entire facility and help it thrive doesn't seem like that much. Because that was, like, not a small facility either. That facility yeah. definitely would appreciate a lot more than a million dollars a year, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. I feel like the computer he bought for <laughs> at the what was it, the twelve core computer that NASA would use or something? Yeah, would... very, very crypto hacker talk, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much that would actually cost, but I don't know. I, that was that was kind of a, a funny thing to donate. I don't know. Is there that much more to say about this movie? I hate to end things like that, but... Oh, I, I want to mention... Yeah. Sorry, the brother thing at the end was really tacked on, too. That... I, I don't know how to feel. I don't... Did you guys like that? Like, how... Uh, it was... What's his name? Was his brother the whole time? Joe Bernthal. I yeah. mean, I will say it was kind of funny, or it's like, they end up, like, fighting it out, and then they just, like, all right, we're cool now. Right, cool. <laughs> and then he and then kills the, the guy right in front of him. <laughs> yeah, and then the guy comes like, "What are you guys doing? I am helping make people whole." Blah 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 blah. Bang. Yeah, why didn't that guy come in with a gun and shoot them both? <laughs> like he would have been fine. They were just sitting there, or run away. He could have run away too. I don't. I will say Joe Bernthal's character, though, was actually kind of, like, he has, like, that smarmy, charis- char- like, charisma to him. Like, when he came and, he, like, he beat up that, uh, the guy in the car, like, the, the, the financial guy. Or, like, the way he, like, kind of, like, cold, menacingly, like, essentially convinced the guy to, like, you know, 
overdose on insulin, basically. Like, like mm. his portrayal was just like was actually really kind of pretty, pretty electric, actually. I will say that he also worked, hey, despite the limited script, I think that this thing had, I think everyone here gave it their all, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. The characters were really well done. Yeah. Well, and I think, like, specifically the performances were really well yeah, done. Yeah, performances were really well done. So, yeah, I think this definitely definitely worked out well. Pierre, talking about performances, where would you put this in, in terms of Anna Kendrick's performance specifically, based on all the movies we've seen? Uh, this is definitely a lower tier anna kendrick performance i I, like i think she she actually like i I like the way she played the character it's just she didn't do any it it felt too damsel and distressy or like at at, at certain points and even a little like beauty and the beastie kind of in some ways which i also really didn't uh, like so yeah i think she if they gave her more to do i would have liked this more i mean it was like i think she she did her the character justice what she was given but mm-hmm. yeah I, i'm a little surprised they she, they chose her for this role slash she she wanted to take this role i guess um to be honest but yeah i would say i would actually put this in like probably just above average and i think it i think it'll fall as we see more anna kendrick movies at this period in her life but like And I think it also benefits a little bit from me having just watched two performances from really early in her career, uh, which weren't bad, but this movie to me really showed how she'd evolved. And like, even though she has very little to do in this movie, this is one where like, she doesn't feel like just necessarily an extra. As I've said before about other movies, I think this movie probably didn't need to have Anna Kendrick being that role, but it does like benefit from Anna Kendrick being in that role. Like uh, she brings a lot to it. And I think she really portrayed that character really well, despite sometimes the writing of the character being pretty silly. But I think that this was a really good show of just how far she's come as an actress, even in those supporting roles, you know, in contrast to a lot of the earlier stuff we've seen. I'll say that, like, again, I haven't seen a ton of her stuff. But when I think Anna Kendrick, I think, like, kind of like Girl Next Door vibes, you know, a little bit, you know, very earnest, if also slightly awkward to some degree. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that really fits, like, the accountant role she has, right? Like, she's, like, you know, this accountant who is, like, kind of, like, awkwardly, like, hey, I kind of discovered, like, we're missing a bunch of money here, basically. Um, Kind of Mm -hmm. awkward, and then, like, awkwardly, like, you know, interacting with with him. But she also has, like, you know, there's some girl next door charm, and she's definitely, like, trying her best to, like, you know, try to connect with him and try to, like, do her job and, and help out. And then, you know, she is taken out of her element a little bit, like, in the action sequences, where it's like, oh, my God, I'm like, what is going on here? But that, I don't know. I feel like it, it all works out. And then as, you know, within the script, someone for him to like, you know, she's, she represents like relating with normal people. I think she's very much like a, a platonic ideal of like, oh, what a normal person to interact with would be like, perhaps. Right. Well, then just to keep it on you, Paolo, I know you haven't seen very many Anna Kendrick movies, mm-hmm. but of the ones you've seen now, including The Accountant, where would you put The Accountant on that list? Either as a number or just like as a range. I mean, somewhere in there. I, th- I would say mid tier. Yeah. You know, I would say, I mean, obviously, Pitch Perfect is just kind of built around her. So that's kind of like, obviously, yeah. it plays all, to all her strengths there. Trolls is a similar manner. And then I and I, I think it's like a step below there. I wouldn't say there was like a very terrible performance either. So I, I can't yeah. say it's like a, a given the limitations of what she was provided. I think she made the most of it. 
Yeah. Like sure. overall, I think I gave this movie like a three out of five. Like I, initially, it was a two out of five on Letterboxd, but I ended up uh, giving raising it up to three out of five after thinking about it a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of where it falls for me. Like this movie, I didn't dislike it, but it's not that special. Like I'm probably gonna forget about this movie in a couple of weeks because there's just not that much to it. But it was good. I, I thought that everyone really brought a lot to it. And in terms of Anna Kendrick movies, I have seen some movies for this show that have been actively bad. And I think it was not one of those. So like, I put it around average. It's like on Letterboxd, I have a list of, I want to say 23 Anna Kendrick movies. I think this was number 10. Nice. I'd probably give it like a 3 out of 10, actually. A little, <laughs> same, same number, but a little different. Um, yeah, it's just it's boring. I will say honestly, the marketing for this movie must have been amazing though, because I have wanted to watch this movie for a long time for some reason. I don't know why, like, but I remember hearing a lot about it in 2016, and I wanted to watch it at the time. I don't know why I didn't, but yeah, I, I actually I probably didn't watch it because I heard it was bad. But you know, I, I commend whoever marketed this movie. It's quite impressive, which also would explain why it did so relatively well in the box office. I think too. Mm-hmm. It's it's weird because I actually remember I remember seeing trailers for this movie, but I actually don't remember it coming out, which is strange, especially considering it was there for as long as it was. Because I remember like I don't know if I was like enthusiastic about wanting to watch it in 2016, but it was definitely on my radar for a bit. And then I'm not sure what happened, but I guess I just missed the entire month of October and November somehow. So I guess the marketing wasn't that good. <laughs> I, I don't know. The marketing didn't work towards me, but it clearly worked for yeah. someone because it was at number four for yeah. like three weeks. There you go. Um, cool. All right. Well, thank you once again for coming on, Paolo, and for breaking down the box office the way you did. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to listen back to this and edit it again because I want to go through that entire thing again. But yeah, where can uh, where can listeners find more of you? It'll obviously linked in the show notes. But yeah, uh, I am not the best at using social media and Twitter, despite having a podcast. But you know, I have you know, obviously the Box Office Watch podcast releases every Tuesday or Wednesday or so, depending on if I have time that Monday night to work on it. Um, going over box office numbers, you know, top top ten for the week and any headlines relevant to the box office. I also have the uh, Oscars Death Face podcast, uh, which is currently in its third season. You know, right right now we're making our way through the best likely best picture nominees ahead of nominations um i believe jeff and pierre will be coming on in a couple of weeks for an episode of that and then i have a bunch of other podcasts as well you know i have an anime podcast called yet another anime podcast i have a match the gathering podcast you know i have some other podcast projects that are uh not as regularly updated like you know i have one called year in memes where i go over the memes of the past year to understand what happened what the hell happened in the last year so you know i'll 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 send all that i think the best way to get a hold of me is uh probably over on uh twitter nin- at ninja boy media n-i-n-j-a-b-o-i-m-e-d-i-a i hope that's right that's not the one i actually use the most often but uh you know i'll, I'll make sure to send uh send my socials to jeff and pierre to include in the show notes and yeah, of course, that'll all be linked below. And next week, 
Oh, next week we're we're gonna talk about one of my favorite Anna Kendrick movies. Actually, I'm really excited to just get more people watching this because it's a it's a very me movie, and it's one that I don't often have the excuse to make people watch. Uh, we're gonna talk about the voices here. Whoa. I think it's gonna be the first, maybe second horror movie we talk about on this show. That's cool. I like horror movies.